0: Hello, you lover of the stories we tell about our built environment. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab, a new podcast coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. If you're intrigued by architecture and how our communities develop, you're in the right place. Prairie Design Lab is a podcast that builds on all that has been accomplished by the first architecture faculty in Western Canada. It was founded more than a century ago. This podcast is created by the students, the faculty of the university, and by many people who care deeply about how we build our communities. I'm Terry McLeod, the host, producer, and writer of Prairie Design Lab. Today we're going to travel to a neighborhood in Winnipeg that you may never have heard of. A neighborhood that no longer exists. It was called Rooster Town. Today we'll hear three different perspectives on this Métis community, which came to an abrupt end on September 1st, 1960. Our first story comes from Daryl Saïs, whose family lived in Roostertown until that fateful day. I met Daryl Saïs last week, very close to where his parents' family home once stood.
1: For those who don't know where Roostertown was, how do you describe where it was? Well, the way I was described from my father, it went from Cambridge to Grant to Nathaniel to Taylor, which Taylor wasn't there back then, it was the railroad tracks. From my father, that's how he described it. Where he helps others describe it going a little further east, I guess. Yes. And where we're standing now at, uh, uh, what's that, Hector over there? Yeah, Hector. So yep. my dad was, uh, said they were at 401 Hector. And where we're standing here, it's actually, the border for the school now, for Grant Park School. So they had their little parcel of land here. My dad always talks like eh, it wasn't worth much in that, but for them, it was everything that was their home. It was something that was paid off for my for my grandfather and my grandmother. It bothers me when he says that. I said, no, that was your home and that was your land that was taken away from you other no reason because you were Métis. What do you know about where their house was? We're standing now between the Pan Am Clinic yeah. and the Pan Am Pool. My dad says it's right uh, at the edge of the Pan Am Clinic here on the east side, so that'd be the northeast side. Uh, there's a little structure there, and when we were out here recently, he said that's where their home was. Mm. My dad's been telling his story about Roostertown since I can remember, and he wanted to share it because he's very proud of He came from Roostertown. As I got older, I understand what happened now. It wasn't that they, they were willing to move, they were actually forced out of their home. How did that come to be? Well, the story my dad tells me is back in uh, the summer of 1960, you went and paid your taxes, I guess, at the end of June. Uh, They went to the the, the city to go pay their taxes. And when they went there, they said, "Uh, you don't own this. Uh, It was my grandmother and my father that went. And my grandfather was working. He worked at the city of Winnipeg. They were upset. What do you mean we don't own it? And they said the school division owns it now. They came home. My grandfather came home. uh, They're upset they ended up telling you have to be gone by september 1st so they had to get themselves together and that they ended up receiving twelve hundred and fifty dollars for the land in the home and then they moved to the north end they weren't successful in finding a nice home there so they went there they met a real estate agent there and uh he convinced them to buy a home and it ended up being, the next year, they found out it was $4,000 in arrear of taxes. So back in 1960, that was a pretty some money and they end up losing that home now. And now they're moving from home to home. What was your family's history in Roostertown? Originally the Saices are from St. Norbert area, uh, were shot Some of the families from St. Norbert wanted to move closer to the city because there were jobs available there. In today's days, we think oh we just take a bus well they didn't have a bus back then they'd either have to walk uh, or horse I guess back then and we're talking about the early 1900s because that's when Roostertown came into to I think 1906 or 1907 so they had a little settlement here my great-grandfather decided to build a house at 401 Pector when his wife died my great-grandmother uh, Supposing my grandfather And my grandmother moved in, and that's where my grandmother, my grandfather raised nine uh, uh, children. My dad was born in 42, so he was almost 18 when he had to leave here. And this is all he knew. And my grandmother lived actually lived here even before that with her dad, who was an Arkand, and they lived here too. So there's quite the history here for that.
0: Right now I can see the Pen Am Pool and the Pen Am
1: Clinic, Grant Park High School. What was here when they were living here? They had a house. Uh, they had a barn because they actually had a horse. Not only did my grandfather lived here, when my aunts uh, became of age and they married, they actually stayed in the community too. So my Auntie Ruth and my Auntie Mary actually lived in the community too. And they were actually forced out of their homes too. They were renting, but they were told they had to leave and they're, if they left it by a certain time my dad said which i think was september 1st of 1960 again they were uh given 75 dollars for their hassle 75 dollars the stories that my dad tell me is important is because it was a really tight-knit community everybody helped everybody else so for example my my dad uh, they had a horse and they would go over to grant and cambridge where there was a water pump that was supplied by the city and they would haul water to the individuals that didn't have a horse and able to uh, get their water. They, they were paying them a small fee for their services but without them they wouldn't have been able to have water. So that's why I get the story from there how tight-knit they were. So so this house of theirs that was I guess about 100 feet from us here, what kind of services did it have? They, my dad said they had no services, no electricity, no water and for the most part most of the homes didn't. They would have to haul their water, and they, he mentions using a, a oil lamp or kerosene lamp. What did your parents do for a living? My uh, father, he had difficulties with school. Um, they didn't like to, uh, indigenous people at school. Uh, he ended up quitting, uh, I think at 14 or 15, and uh, he had to go find a job. So he ended up being a milkman's helper at Royal Dairies. When they were removed from here, they had to leave. He moved to the North End, and he still came back to this end of town to work for George Anshu. I was born, and he was 20 years old. He needed a full-time job, you know, a higher-paying one, so the dairy agreed to hire him to work inside the fridge. It's way in the North End, and he would come here every day to work and he worked for Royal Dairies until I was about 14 years old. So how close was the dairy to where we're standing now? The dairy was at Cambridge and uh, it's right at the corner there. That's why I know about rooster and cons, I ended up helping my dad with his milk run too. So the dairy was located at uh, Cambridge and Carter. When my dad quit, uh, like I said, I was 14 years old. He then he was successful in finding a job with the city of Winnipeg, where he retired after 27 years. So it, it did him well. Uh, from my understanding, there was another Cambridge Dairies he's mentioned. Uh, there was Pound Landscaping, and that would who employ the people from Eustertown. When they moved them, they lost their employment at the same time. Unless they were willing to come all this way for to come here and and work, which again my my dad did my uncle Bert, my uncle philip and my uncle willie all came here to work at royal dairies uh, who referred to this area as rooster town uh it's, it's funny because my dad always says i don't know who the hell calls it rooster town we don't know how it got uh to this day he still doesn't understand why it's called rooster town he's heard the stories where they said they had some cockfighting here which it wasn't at all there'd be rooster fighting uh, someone had a whole pile of chickens that's not true either my dad remembers it, it used to be called pecan town What's that mean? Um, from my understanding, that's uh, hazelnut. So I guess the area was loaded with hazelnuts. It's uh, a Métis word. Oh. So I don't know if it's, if it's uh, closer to Cree or Ojibwe or French. Uh, I don't know. But my dad's story he shares is one time he was getting water at the pump there. Some guy walks by and asks him, hey, young fellow. He said, uh, where's this pecan town? And my dad says, you're in it right now. So, my dad doesn't know where the rooster town came from, my uncle Philip doesn't, nobody knows why it was named rooster town. How did they feel about it being called rooster town? My dad really didn't care, <laughs> he calls it to this day, he calls it rooster town all the time, uh, because he's very proud that he, 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 that he was raised in this area and where he came from. So, But being forced out of here in 1960, what does he say or what did he tell you about how he felt about that? Well, it bothers him but he said he's moved on. Um, he's, He said he was able to uh, find a wife. Um, very happy with his uh, three children. He's a very proud father. So he's always says, I've lived a very nice life, so I have nothing to complain about. I think he needs closure and someone saying, we're sorry what we put you guys through. And so w- what does saying sorry actually look like? What do you mean? For for me, it would be, you know, uh, the city uh, meeting with the former residents, not me. They don't have to meet, with, but meeting with my father, uh, my uncle and other former residents and say what we did to you We're sorry. Uh, it wasn't right because to move them out, um, the Winnipeg Free Press and the Winnipeg Tribune came in as my dad tells me, came in and uh, wrote some stories and took some pictures and they weren't very flattering of the people here. Uh, they made them look like they're all on uh, social assistance, none of them worked on that and it was nothing but false accusations. Through this journey that I've taken with my uncle Philip and my dad is, uh, especially from my Uncle Philip, I learned how much this really truly affected my grandmother. Uh, and the fact that it made, made me realize my grandmother never had a home after this. My grandmother and my grandfather were about 25 years apart. When my grandfather passed away, I believe it was in 72, uh, my grandmother was by herself and back in those days they didn't work so she had no pension except for a survivor's pension from my grandfather. And she never had a home. They didn't just take her house away from it an, and their land. They took her home away from her. They do here they were perfectly happy. It may not have had everything, but they were happy and they they loved where where they lived. My grandmother never had a home and in fact she was ended up having to live with with her daughters because she had nowhere to go. So I think that's wrong. Thinking back now I see my grandmother where she was all the time, you know, it's not right. For someone to come forward and say what we did was wrong and we're sorry. I don't think They truly understand what they did to these families. There is a commemoration that they're building at the new
0: Bill and Helen Norrie Library. What kind of involvement have you had
1: in the Roostertown commemoration? We were contacted by HF... uh, H... T F C. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we met at the Pan Am Pool. So I guess they were contracted by the city to meet with us, and they it was nice because the city actually wants to acknowledge the community now. So they we met. Uh, I'm guessing there must have been at least 20 families there at the first meeting. And they talked about doing different things. One of the first meetings was they were talking about naming it the library after Roostertown. They all loved that, but the next thing they came back, no, it's going to be called the Bill and Helen Norrie. Um, I know my Uncle Phil was quite upset about it, but I understand, you know, it, it, it's just the way it is. It, uh, the council decided to name it after that. We wanted to follow this through because we we truly believe it should be acknowledged somehow about the families of Roostertown.
0: Daryl Sae's family lived in Roostertown for three generations, but were forced out in 1960. Many of us are just discovering the story of Roostertown. I did when I was still working at CBC Radio. In 2016, I interviewed University of Winnipeg urban social geographer Evelyn Peters about her Roostertown research. In 2018, she published what has become the definitive book on the subject, with Matthew Stock, Adrian Werner and Laurie Barkwell. That book was a wake-up call to many, including Murray Peterson. He's the historical buildings officer for the city of Winnipeg. In short, he's the city's historian. I spoke to him last week. When did you first become aware of Roostertown? That's a
2: terrific question.
0: Uh, very late in
2: the game. It would have been uh, a couple of years ago I had, in uh, 2016, been asked to do some work on the Cinnaboy Residential School, uh, which was on Academy Road in the city of Winnipeg here. Uh, I got uh, in contact, and it was my honor to contact a lot of the uh, the survivors and graduates from the school. Um, we, we created, the city created a, a set of uh, interpretive banners um, to discuss. GUS uh, residential schools and, and Winnipeg, the City of Winnipeg's role in, in, in our residential school. There was more contact I had with the Indigenous Relations Division of the City of Winnipeg, uh, and they, they were quite pleased with how the um, the Assiniboine Residential School uh, banners turned out and, and asked if there was something maybe that we could do uh, for Rooster Town about uh, recognizing, you know, the history there that, that we were starting to understand as being hidden. Um, so that would have been really my
0: my start so it would have been a couple of years ago when you discovered the existence of roostertown from about 1901 to about 1960 what did you think
2: i knew very little about it which was i guess not surprising but you know i'm i've you know i've been doing history in winnipeg for you know 30 years or 40 years almost it surprised me that, that I didn't know anything about it. Um, you know, not that I know everything, but just that, that there was so little information out there.
0: What did you learn about what happened in September of 1960 in terms of city planning, which led to the removal of the people and the homes of Roostertown?
2: Well, that was a classic example of, uh, you know, development, and I'm using that in quotations, modern development. Um, you know, pushing aside uh, what had been there before. I mean, it happened, you know, farmland was was developed. It, it happens all over the city of Winnipeg. It happens all over North America, over the world. What was unfortunate in this part was that it wasn't cattle and horses that were moved. It was people... I sort of realized that the development happens Um, you know it it continues to happen it's how that development works and how it works within the realm of you know society and and what's happening there so you know for the people of Roostertown they were quite used to being moved out as again quotations modern development happened Um, so you know they kept moving further away as as you know the the sewers came in and the pavement came and the curbs came and the you know the houses came historically had picked up and moved their houses to you know to a more isolated area. So this was, you know, in the 1960s. This was, you know, sort of, I guess, really the final straw. They were simply removed, and, and, and that brings into play how they were described, how the how the community was described, and how it was lessened in, in the newspapers and, and some of the reporting to make it,
0: I guess, more palatable uh, for people to move them out. What consideration was given at the time to the needs of those being removed.
2: There are very much in this case two sides to this story um and the story that we've always been told this from the side of of sort of the the uh, larger uh, population the larger culture um I, i think what's fascinating for me and i i think what's going to be an, an exceptional uh, result of this, of these projects is, is to get this, the other side of the story here. I think what you're finding in the documentation in the city archives or in the newspapers is that the larger society considered what they were doing that the, the people of Roostertown were given fair compensation for their, for their property and their land. And, and I think what you're finding out now or discovering because we're talking now to Roostertown people is that that wasn't the case, that while, you know, the, the larger community was saying this is fair and we're, you know, we're doing this for progress and, you know, this is going to be the betterment of the city of Winnipeg. And, and perhaps that's true. What you ended up doing was really alienating a, a, a tight-knit
0: neighborhood and community. What part is the city of Winnipeg playing now in relation to the former community of Roostertown?
2: we've got a number of projects on the go right now we uh, we spearheaded a, an oral history uh, project with in work with uh, the Mantua museum so we've uh, we've interviewed some of the the rooster town residents so that was one project that we started actually just yesterday I was at the Beaumont uh, rapid transit uh, station and there's a there's a kettle there uh, commemorating rooster town there's a panel there commemorating rooster town um, a lot of things going on and then of course the uh, the building on Helen Norry, um Library on
0: Granite Avenue. Uh, I spoke at length with Daryl Saiz uh, yesterday uh, on the site where his family's house used to stand between uh, the Pan Am Clinic and the Pan Am Pool. And one of the things that really struck me in the conversation with him is that he, and particularly his older relatives, wants someone to say sorry. Is that going to happen or has it happened? From a historical perspective, I'm
2: I'm trying to use the interpretation in the library and, and the other work that I do. I, I'm trying to say sorry by bringing the story, the true story, to um, to as many Winnipegers and, and non winnipegers as possible. So I can't really comment on sort of an official apology or a story. I, I can tell you that I'm working really hard to make sure that the what was Roostertown and the really wonderful things that happened in roostertown and the really horrible things that happened that were said to have happened in roostertown that actually didn't i'm trying to bring some truth there so for me my apology takes the form of a, of getting the story right and getting the story as of as many roostertown people as possible part of the interpretation installation that the library is going to be inviting people to tell their stories uh, we haven't quite figured out how that's going to look yet or how that's going to work but to me, the real idea of this is to, to get as many stories out as possible and to give us a, an easy way, a more comfortable way for people from Roostertown to tell those stories because they're difficult stories to tell. They include you know being torn apart from family and friends, um, you know the, the lack of community, the lack of uh, neighbourhood, the lack of family. Um, they're very difficult stories to tell i can tell you when i worked with the assiniboia residential school survivors uh, many of them uh, found it very difficult to tell the stories but they moved along on their you know their path and and they were able to tell the stories i i I find that for roostertown they may not quite be ready yet to tell those stories it's a horrible story it it really is and i think um if we give them time and we give them a place a comfortable safe place and and a, a knowledge that what they say is going to be listened to. I think that's going to go a long way um, into, I'm not going to suggest that we'll ever make it right, but at least for me, that's a form of apology to say, look, we, you know, we recognize your stories and we honor your stories. So that's what I'm trying to do.
0: In looking at the numbers of Métis people in the 1870 census, when Winnipeg joined Confederation, I mean, there were about... 12,000 people in the Red River Colony at the time, and almost 10,000 of those identified themselves as Métis. The discovery that I made of that census data reminds me of the incredible, the important role that the Métis played in the founding of this community, that at that time, when we joined Confederation, Winnipeg was a Métis community. And I don't think Winnipeggers understand and appreciate that. What do you think?
2: I would agree 100% with that. Um, you know, when you start looking at the original, uh, you know, river lots, the way that they, you know, originally surveyed the, the land, uh, you know, in and around Winnipeg, you recognize that the the Métis were uh, large-scale landowners. Uh, you know, they, you know, they retired from the fur trade and they they bought land or they were, you know, given land and they settled on it and they built houses and they they, uh, they farmed. Um, I, I think Again, down the road, I, I hope that we're going to discover how important the Métis roots are for the history of Manitoba and Western Canada. It's a big story, and I, and, you know, obviously hasn't been told uh, well enough yet. But if you start to dig now, you start to see, you know, there are scholarly r- reports on on Métis farming, how how organized they were or how, you know, settled they were, or how, you know, you're, again, it's, it's very much like it mirrors Roostertown in that, you know, we're starting to, to bring more of these stories to life, you know, we're starting to listen now to our elders, we're starting to listen now to the stories, you know, the oral history traditions, I think uh, that can only lead to, you know, a more rounded understanding of Western Canadian history, and certainly Winnipeg and Manitoba.
0: Murray Peterson is the City of Winnipeg's historian. Another person working to tell us about Roostertown is Maureen Krauss. She's a principal with the Winnipeg Landscape Architecture and Planning Firm, HTFC, which Daryl Saiz mentioned earlier. Maureen Krauss is collaborating with many people to tell the Roostertown story using conversation and landscape architecture. Uh, I spoke to Daryl Saiz the other day. and He was talking about his aunt and how painful it still is for her with the recollection of what happened when the families were ejected. What do you do with those powerful emotions in terms of the work that you do?
3: In landscape, we can have the opportunity to either embed the images or, or points for conversation within the landscape some way. So whether it's actually outlining where, we're, where actual buildings once stood as a point of conversation or um, being able to use and harken back to, for example, in the exterior, um, many of the natural um, plants that were actually part of the area that was so great around Roostertown. So they called it Pecan Town, and that's midchief for pecan, but it's really referring to beaked hazelnut. So hazelnut plantings. And um, Saskatoon plantings would be something that we would incorporate into the exterior garden space at the back of the library.
0: September 1st, 1960, the city basically arrived on the site and said, you're leaving now. We're moving you out. Yep. We're demolishing your houses, which was at the time, I expect a design decision or a planning decision from the city of Winnipeg. That must be something that would have a great deal of sensitivity among the former residents there about the issue of what the city did to Mm -hmm. their community, and you as a planner, landscape planner, must Mm -hmm. have to be attuned to these kinds
3: of concerns. Well, considerably so, and there's so many layers. You know, Daryl was there with his father and his daughter. So there were three generations, actually, who were with us when we were having these discussions and consultations and it just made you realize that the, the ripple effect of it for um, young Kaylee, Daryl's daughter, still very much uh, something that she lived with as well because she heard these stories from grandpa, from his father, and you have to realize that it's generational. As we know, in all other things, such as residential schools, or that it's not just one generation it's affecting, it's multiple generations. Oral history is such a wonderful way in which we can engage um, people. And so the library is a perfect opportunity. And while we are really working on it outside of a building, we know that that's a form that could definitely be incorporated inside the building. But we bring together people, ideas, concepts, sometimes they're in the exterior, sometimes they're inside. And my work actually, we do a lot of cultural resource management, we'll say, looking at cultural landscapes and looking at ways in which we can um, celebrate, honor, preserve these stories. In what way were
0: you changed by being involved in this project?
3: As a resident of River Heights, literally living blocks away from this, and not knowing this story, not knowing this history, was really shocking to me because it, it is within my generation. It's within my family's time. And when I can drive down Weatherden or some of the streets, that are still there, and many of the houses are still there. You know, it really does give me pause that when I think about Grant Park Shopping Mall, which was really the, this was the big ticket, this was the modern concept, the modern idea of this mall, uh, and that's really what this was making way for. The, the homes were making way for this, you know, great, great asset, this wonderful shopping amenity. It does really, really make you think about who was here well before us and what, what our community must have looked like. And so you just feel like there's little echoes of it. Sometimes there's a little bit of kind of wild bush, you know, that you might see or something. And you, it just it just makes me think that I have a community here in my neighborhood and how much I value my neighbors and my kinship. That's what they had there. And that was taken away.
0: In what way do you want Winnipeggers to benefit from this project that you are
3: part of? If I haven't heard about this story, I can only think how many other Winnipeggers have never heard this story. So tell the story. Let it be known. Bring these people and their very rich kinship that they had together. We had an opportunity to uh, share some of the genealogy work that Evelyn Peters had done. And Terry, when we rolled out the line, it was banquet tables long or, you know, six banquet tables long. It was this incredible, incredible genealogy line. And I just thought that is so rich. I don't have that in my in my life. It was just an incredibly rich kinship that was here at this site. And uh, and then it just evaporated. What
0: can we all learn about what happened at Roostertown?
3: Not to judge how other, how other people live. What I saw in the few times that I was able to meet with the family members was that all of a sudden this was a bit of a catalyst for families coming back together. People who had not talked about this for a very long time were starting to come back together and starting to talk and starting to share. To the point where this past summer, Daryl was planning a Celebration at the site. And unfortunately, due to COVID, like everything else in this last summer, it wasn't able to come to fruition. But they were going to be renting a stage. They had Ray St. Germain. They had music lined up. They had dancing lined up. And all of a sudden, I realized that this small way in which we were starting to recognize this was really acting as a way for themselves as families to come together. And to be a catalyst. So I hope when the library opens and I hope when future as we progress on other maybe site work within this area, that we just always take time to celebrate and recognize that um, there's a lot of people that have a lot of history and a lot of investment, a lot of hurt. But a lot of love all associated with
0: this place. Maureen Krauss of HTFC Landscape Architecture and Planning. The new Bill and Helen Norrie Library is nearing completion at the corner of Grant and Cambridge in Winnipeg in what was Roostertown. If you like Prairie Design Lab, please tell your friends about us. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and on UMFM Radio 101.5 FM in Winnipeg at 11.30 a.m. on Wednesdays. I'm your host, producer, and writer, Terry McLeod.